0: Hello and welcome to The Bunker. I'm Ros Taylor. The Democratic Unionist Party has never given up easily. Would the Prime Minister kindly confirm to the House that the sovereignty of the United Kingdom and its four nations will not be compromised? Uh, Mr Mr. Speaker, I can give my honourable friend that assurance. I know this is something that he cares passionately about. Uh, The implementation of the protocol is having an impact for communities in Northern Ireland. Uh, That's why it needs uh, to be addressed. That was Rishi Sunak coming under some pressure in the Commons last week. But what does sovereignty for Northern Ireland really mean? And are we really close to a deal on the super vexed issue of the Northern Ireland Protocol? With me to tease apart what's really going on is Amanda Ferguson, a freelance journalist based in Belfast. Welcome to the bunker, Amanda. Hello, thanks for having me. I keep reading that a deal on the Protocol is imminent. Is that right? I, I hope so. Anyway, it's a
1: bit of a sort of Groundhog Day story that uh, everybody really wants there to be a deal and to get this issue that's been tormenting the EU and the UK government and the and the local parties in Northern Ireland resolved. I think that the, that cliched mood music quote uh, keeps being used and certainly uh, there's more positivity uh, around a solution and it does appear as if we're incrementally creeping towards a deal, but whether or not it restores devolved government in Northern Ireland remains to be seen.
0: Let's explain this a bit, because the protocol is undeniably quite complicated. I mean, Boris Johnson didn't really seem to understand what he was signing when he did. While the rest of the UK has completely left the EU, under the protocol, Northern Ireland has effectively stayed in the single market and the customs union. To go back to the absolute basics, why was that necessary? It's for goods, and I'm not sure that I agree with
1: the analysis about about Boris Johnson. I think he knew exactly what he was signing. I think he just wanted to get Brexit done as he uh, viewed it. Essentially, Northern Ireland is part of the United Kingdom. Scotland, England, Wales and Northern Ireland. But obviously, Northern Ireland is a unique part of the UK in that it's on a separate island. It's on the island of Ireland with all of its history. And while we're a place that's at peace, it is still a contested place. And the Good Friday Agreement brought the violence to an end and settle the constitutional question with regard to Northern Ireland's part of the UK. That only changes as if people vote for it. And there's always been uh, conversations around Irish unity, but they've definitely been accelerated since Brexit because it's been so disruptive to pretty much everybody. So because Northern Ireland has a, an invisible land border with the rest of Ireland, it's the only part of the UK that has that, that border with an EU member state in the Republic of Ireland. So there's always going to have to be some sort of special arrangement or something that takes into consideration the unique circumstances and and geographical location of Northern Ireland whenever it comes to Brexit. And that's how we ended up with the protocol. And the protocol is just there for goods, it's not there for services. But unfortunately, it's caused a lot of disruption and unionist political leaders in particular, view it as something that they feel is economically damaging to Northern Ireland, but they also view it as constitutionally damaging to Northern Ireland. Now, everybody should remember that Northern Ireland voted to remain uh, by 56%. But of course, it's a UK-wide Vote. So the vote was carried and people understand that as democracy, that's how it goes. But the parties that, that aren't the DUP and, and perhaps aren't unionist leaders appreciate that there has to be some set of circumstances in place to respect Northern Ireland's unique position. And they would view the protocol as something that mitigates against the worst impacts of Brexit. So there's no sort of real meeting of minds between uh, the DUP and, and unionist leaders and the other parties when it comes to the protocol. But I think it should be pointed out and it's often missed. Is that everybody acknowledges that there are issues with the protocol, that it's not perfect, that while that dual market access is benefiting some companies and some businesses, that it's causing headaches for others and it needs to be made less bureaucratic and it needs to be made more practical and and to flow smoother. So we're at at the scenario now where we're hearing every uh, week or so about the tunnel and are we close to a final, final deal? I think we're a little bit off that yet.
0: So this is the key when the DUP talks about the importance of sovereignty in Northern Ireland. They don't want to be under the EU yoke as they see it. Well, the DUP set out
1: what it calls its seven tests. So essentially what they did in February of last year was pull Paul Given from the first minister role and sort of trying to be disruptive in regards to the protocol and showing that they didn't like it. Now, we had an election in May and it brought up a really uh, historic election result for, for Sinn Féin. Sinn Féin's the Irish Republican Party who want Irish unity. They emerged as the largest party in Northern Ireland for the first time in its 101 year history. The DUP, came into second place. So while the DUP say that they object to the protocol on the basis of having an impact on sovereignty and having an impact on the economy and the constitutional position of Northern Ireland, some people view it as a sort of excuse that their real issue is that they're not top dog anymore, that they're not the largest party anymore. Now, with the seven tests, they, uh, obviously the DUP reject that suggestion, by the way, I should put that in there. But with the the seven tests, some of them are very broad and some of them are very specific. So they are, fulfill the Article 6 of the Act of Union, avoid any diversion of trade, not constitute a border in the Irish give the people of Northern Ireland a say in making the laws which govern them, result in no checks on goods going from Northern Ireland to GB or from GB to Northern Ireland if, if goods are remaining and in Northern Ireland, ensure there's no regulatory borders developing between Northern Ireland and the rest of the UK, and then what they describe as preserve the letter and spirit of Northern Ireland's constitutional guarantee in the Belfast Agreement by requiring consent from a majority of its citizens for any diminution of its status as part of the UK. So as you can see that looks like something that you could that it could be quite difficult to satisfy and obviously whenever uh, you're in a negotiation and the EU has to win and the UK has to win you're never going to get everything that you want so we could be in a scenario where the EU and the UK decide that they have a deal but then it's not backed by the DUP and some other unionist leaders and, and voices and then we're back to kind of square one, which is why Doug Beattie, who's the leader of the smaller Ulster Unionist Party in Northern Ireland, he doesn't like the protocol either. But his argument is that we should be back at Stormont, that all the parties should be governing on a local level while the EU and the UK resolve the outstanding issues that there are with the protocol. So that's where they differ, you know, with the DUP, where the DUP are very clear we're not going in until we get what we want. So we're in a in a ropey position at the moment
0: so to be clear the dup says it won't rejoin the power sharing assembly at stormont unless its tests all its tests are met
1: yeah you know and as i said because some of the those tests are set specific and some of them are very broad, it can be hard to look at exactly what it is that's going to satisfy them to get them back in, which is why the other sort of conversation around the DUP using it as a convenient excuse pops up. Like a lot of voices you will hear saying this is a problem that the DUP has with Sinn Féin being the largest party. It's because nationalism is in the top dog position now. However, the DUP say, look, once if we can get this sorted out, we'll be back into devolved government. But so I think at the moment it has a presentational issue over this particular matter. And I think that's why all the conversations that you're hearing about will we won't be having another election, some people would view if the Secretary of State does go for another election at some point that perhaps that would look like a distortion of democracy because there was that historic result that we had in May of last year that hasn't been fulfilled yet. So the DUP has said if it's seven tests are met, it'll go back in to to Sermot without an election. But it just remains to be seen what the EU and the UK decide on, because if they satisfy everything that perhaps the DUP and the ERG are looking for, does that mean that they're going to compromise on areas that maybe the nationalists and other parties might have issues with? So Brexit is just one of those stories that isn't going away for any of us across the UK and Ireland, but particularly within Northern Ireland, and because it's opened up all these conversations about identity and it's not just a politics story, it's economics and business and history and law and a culture all all blended into one. So while I would be hopeful that we would get Stormont back up and running soon, it's not a guarantee and it's having real major life impact on day-to-day business because each of our departments is being run by civil servants and they have limited powers. There's only so much that they can do and there was an issue that came up in the last week or two around organ donation. We're the only part of the UK that doesn't have the organ donation legislation that we should and and for for Northern Ireland it's going to be called Dahi's Law after a young boy uh, Dahi McGavin who needs a new heart and because it needs some sort of secondary legislation there's no ministers in place to put that through so it means there's a delay on you know potentially saving people's lives and the UK government isn't stepping in straight away to resolve that particular issue and there's no minister to do it at a local level so you could add that to the list of you know scores of of items that are just sitting there doing nothing and you know Northern Ireland is used to this form of government in that we have this stop-start arrangement where there's collapses and stops and starts every so often and I think that's why the the Alliance Party that uh, cross community and middle ground party is really seeking for reform of the institutions because they're just saying that the system we have at the moment kind of encourages people to exercise vetoes and it doesn't work for the people that live here.
0: How do you think ordinary people feel about this? You know, politicians aside, and you know, as Sinn Fein did did well, as you said, in the last set of elections, are, are the people frustrated at this impasse?
1: Yeah, people are frustrated. You know, the, that's a, a feature of Northern Ireland politics. But as I said, the the stop start nature of, of government here is something that people have kind of become accustomed to. You're, we're almost used to a certain level of dysfunction. And I think that 25 years on from the Good Friday Agreement, that there maybe does need to be a look at how the system works, because we can't have a position where we keep having, you know, one party or another, whether it's nationalists or unionists or whoever, being able to exercise, you know, a veto and collapse in government to the detriment of people here in that's They're not getting violence against women and girls strategies not being brought forward. The health service waiting list, the worst in the UK, not being dealt with in a sufficient manner. The list of of items that need to be dealt with is just growing day by day. So I think sometimes people ask me, you know, why are people not out rioting or, you know, why are people not out, you know, making more of a fuss about this? People are. People are highlighting all of the areas where their lives are being impacted, but there isn't very much that they can do about it at the moment. So it really is down to the EU and the UK to come together with a deal that kind of suits everybody. And then we see what that means for the future of power
0: sharing in this part of the world. And one of the things that really exercises the Conservative Party in particular, but also the DUP, of course, is the role of the European Court of Justice, isn't yes. it? Yeah. Are they likely to make any progress on that? Or is it a red line as far as Brussels is concerned?
1: Well, we know in recent days that there's been movement on the trade side of of, of things. There's been talk about the, the goods that are flowing between GB and Northern Ireland and, and Northern Ireland and GB. And there's been uh, speculation about movement on animal health and food safety issues and not just the, the customs formalities, but that ECJ and the arbitration and also the governance of whatever deal that the EU and the UK come up with is a major issue. You know, on one side of things, people who are very hardline on the issue of the ECJ will say that foreign jurisdiction is creating foreign law and people in Northern Ireland don't have any say on it so I think that there'll have to be movement somewhere. I know that the UK's unilateral protocol bill doesn't have everything that the unionists exactly would be asking for in it but I think that an acknowledgement that there has to be movement whenever it comes to arbitration and how the role of the ECJ affects people in Northern Ireland. You know, I think that the the UK had previously signalled they would be prepared to accept a role of sorts for the ECJ, maybe some sort of arms length arrangement and that if items were going to be referred to the ECJ, they'd have to come to independent arbitrators as well. So there has to be a uh, movement on both sides. This is the, the issue whenever it comes down to any negotiation, and particular when it comes to Northern Ireland, there has to kind of be something that satisfies everybody. You have to be able to... For the UK to protect itself in the way that it wants, and for people to be satisfied that there they're a good deal has been struck, but also the the European Union has to to protect its member states and its single market, and you know it can't be just a one way street. So that's one of the the more contentious issues. But I think there's certainly discussions that are are continuing, but whether or not it gets wrapped up in time for the anniversary of the Good Friday Agreement a- in April remains to be seen. I don't think that unionists in particular are particularly concerned about wrapping everything up neatly in a little bow for a, a visit from Joe Biden um, should that happen. But that's certainly something that people are looking towards because 25 years on from the, the peace deal, people are sort of reflecting on on the, the way that politics and society is working here. But the demographics of Northern Ireland are changing, the political landscape's changing. We can see as well, even in the Republic of Ireland, that Sinn Féin, who's a party of government in Northern Ireland, looks poised to help form government or maybe form government in the Republic of Ireland after their next election. And that changes how the the Good Friday Agreement is looked at because at the moment the UK government and the Irish government are co-guarantors of the Good Friday Agreement. The Americans help broker the deal, but they're the two co-guarantors. So what happens when... There's an all-island party where perhaps Sinn Féin's in government in the Republic of Ireland. They're a co-guarantor of the Good Friday Agreement. They're also in government in Northern Ireland. What way does it work for the future and for meetings and so on? So I think that whenever it comes to this part of the world, it isn't just about trade. It isn't just about the ECJ or about state aid or VAT or tariff rate quotas. And please don't ask me to explain all of these things. Um, It is down to the political question and the fact that while we're at peace, this is a contested place and the conversations about Irish unity are continuing and have been accelerated post-Brexit because it's been so disruptive to this part of the world.
0: You mentioned it's 25 years since the Good Friday Agreement. It's also 25 years since the Omar bombing. A few days ago, the government announced there would be a new inquiry into that. I mention Omar because really to remind ourselves of what's at stake here if there's a return to violence. You were living in Northern Ireland in 1998 when Omar happened, weren't you?
1: Well, yeah, I'm
0: I'm born and bred in Belfast. And in 1998, I was moving
1: from my family home in Belfast to Glasgow to go to university over there. So it was a couple of weeks before I moved uh, away from university and the Omar bomb took place. The real IRA is responsible for that. 29 people died, including uh, a woman uh, who was pregnant. And it was just an awful Awful atrocity, one of the worst atrocities of the troubles of the conflict, whatever you want to call what happened here. But it happened after the Good Friday Agreement referendum. So, you know, we were all optimistic. We'd voted for this new peace. You know, obviously, any sort of peace deal comes with compromise and and pain for a lot of people, but the overall seemed worth it. And then for this bomb to happen and, and to try to derail the beginning and the fledgling part of the peace process was just absolutely awful. So, I think what's happened is that the UK government's introduced Or announced that it's going to have an independent statutory inquiry into the Oma bomb. Now, What's happening there is it's not to take away from the responsibility of the real IRA who were responsible for the bomb, but it's just to look about the maybe the preventability of the of the OMA bombing and look at security services, look at information that was flowing, you know, the handling and sharing of intelligence, cell phone analysis, all that sort of stuff. And I think that's going to have to be a UK and Irish government investigation. Maybe they'll be intertwined with each other. The UK will have its own, maybe running in parallel with the Irish government. I think the two governments have to work at the Detail of that, but I think that one of the stark things that it highlighted is the fact that the UK government's current legacy bill that has been introduced for effectively an amnesty on sort of criminal prosecutions, inquests, civil looks into pre nineteen ninety eight events means that justice is closed off for all of those people if if the bill goes ahead and there's like a universal dislike for this legacy bill that's going through the lords at the moment you know whether you whether it's the DUP or Sinn Fein or the SDLP or the Irish government nobody likes this because it's interpreted as a bill that's there to protect soldiers from prosecution Whereas the UK government argued that it's there to try to give people as much information about what went on because they don't feel that the current system's working. So it's just really interesting that on one hand, you can have this announcement about this inquiry into what happened with the OMA bombing. But, you know, for the stuff that happened before that, that the UK government's trying to, to change
0: people's access to truth around that. Northern Ireland's never been free of tensions, really. But does it feel particularly fragile at the moment?
1: Not in particular, you know, like I, I was born in 1979, so I was a kid in the 80s, a teenager in the 90s and, you know, became an adult in time to vote for the Good Friday Agreement. So I know, you know, some of the horror of what happened here or perhaps in perhaps in a more sort of understood way than people who are younger than I am so it's definitely not anything that anybody would want to go back to and that there is not the same circumstances or you know the same conditions that that led to what happened here that the blighted here and the impact of which we still feel today There is a lot of conversations about the politics of this place and what happens next, you know, whether Northern Ireland remains part of the UK or whether a New Ireland, as it's being described, is created. I think we're a little way off a referendum at this point. I think that, you know, Irish unity is probably in my mind something that will happen in the medium to long term it's not going to happen in the short term because you know it's definitely it's definitely an issue if you look at the census results you'll see that if you look at you know who's likely to be the the first batches of voters that are coming up next they're more likely to be from an irish catholic nationalist you know kind of background whereas the older end of the demographics you're more likely to be in the in the cohort where you're from a, a protestant unionist kind of background obviously you can't be prescriptive about all these things but you know that older generation and, is dying or it's, it's getting older whereas the younger generations are more in favour of Irish unity so what does that mean for the society here but regardless of what happens whether you are someone who identifies as Irish or you're someone who identifies as British or you identify as some combination of those things no matter what happens we're all going to still be here and we're all going to have to live alongside each other and accommodate each other's different experiences and, and different wants and needs and that isn't going to change whether Northern Ireland's part of the UK or whether it's part of a New Ireland as it's called. I think sometimes the prospect of violence and the threat of violence is talked up a little bit too much. I think obviously there's still a risk of that. There's always a risk of that kind of behavior, but it's not something that, you know, the majority of people would want, or not something that's exercising everybody on a day to day basis. It's the same with the, the protocol and the and the Brexit, post Brexit arrangements. People are just trying to get on with their lives and want what everybody wants in that they want the, you know a healthy family, they want, you know, good jobs. They want all of the infrastructure and and items that make day to day life easier. So I don't think that, you know, people are waking up, you know, particularly anxious about the protocol right across the board. Of course, it's something that particularly impacts on unionists. And the fact that it causes such upset to the unionist community has to be taken into consideration and has to be addressed. But I don't think that there is a massive sort of angst amongst people day to day. I just think people would like some sort of normal functioning government. They'd like to get Brexit done, really. Yeah, well, this is the thing, because unionists argue that Brexit hasn't been done and that they didn't get the Brexit that the rest of the UK got. Whereas other people are, are, are looking to it and saying, well, we didn't vote for Brexit, but we understand there has to be something there and we just want to get on. I think sometimes the impact of the protocol can be talked up beyond what's actually happening. Of course, it's definitely causing an issue for people in terms of their identity. For some people, it's definitely not working for every single type of business. But whenever you have such an earthquake like Brexit and you have such arrangements as the protocol, like it's not even been fully implemented yet, of course, there's going to be a disturbance with that that while people work out how the structures of it work and how it flows and so on. But you know, really whenever it comes down to it, the Good Friday Agreement, regardless of whether people like it or they don't like it, it's very clear in that Northern Ireland's part of the UK, unless and until people would vote for something different.
0: And I suppose that's democracy as well. Amanda, thanks so much for joining us. Thank you. If you enjoyed today's bunker, you can support us on Patreon by searching for Patreon Bunker Podcast. I'm Ros Taylor. Thanks for listening. Bunker Daily was written and presented by Roz Taylor. The producers were Alex Reese and Jeff Gerbertson with assistant production from Kata Tomasiewicz. The lead producer was Jacob Jarvis and the audio producer was me, Jade Bailey. The group editor is Andrew Harrison and our marketing manager is Gina Richard. Artwork by James Parrott with music by Kenny Dickinson. The Bunker is a Podmasters production.